This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. And Matt, we have a lot of stuff to talk about today. A couple of extremely unique home runs. As far as StatCast goes, we have to get to an argument that we've had about who is the fastest player in baseball history, basically, and is he playing right now? We have a player who's in the MVP uh, argument this year who has maybe some of the weirdest home road splits I think I've ever seen, and a White Sox pitcher who we've talked about a lot on the show has made his 2017 debut, and we just want to check in on that. But first, we have to talk about what happened, I think, in yesterday's Pirates-Dodgers game. As you may have noticed, Rich Hill came very close to pitching a perfect game. It didn't happen, and that's because Josh Harrison hit what I believe was the first walk-off home run in baseball history to destroy a a no-hitter. Correct. Which was was amazing. (laughs) If you somehow missed it last night, Rich Hill took a perfect game into the ninth. It ended on a Logan Forsythe error. Uh, I think with one was I can't remember if it went off the inning or first out. Uh, anyway, yeah, it doesn't matter. But yeah, yeah. And so that ended the no hitter. But he he retired, finished the finished the inning without allowing a hit. And then Josh Harrison led off the tenth inning of a zero zero game with a generally by the met, by the met, met metric used to an unimpressive home run. I, I have to ask a question before we get into the details here. What was less probable? Josh Harrison's home run, which had a 16% hit probability, or Rich Hill pitching into the 10th inning after having started the game? Right? Yeah, that's true, because a year ago, last September against the Marlins in Miami, September 10th, Rich Hill took a no-hitter through seven innings and was controversially taken out, because at the time, I think you know, he had a, he already thrown like 100 pitches, and Rich Hill has a long history of injuries, and it was you know somewhat controversial. It was the second time in the year, in 2016, that Dave Roberts had taken out a pitcher uh, with a no hitter intact. He'd done it to Ross Stripling earlier in the season, so it was a you know it was one of those stories that that burned up the news cycle for the baseball news cycle for about a day. It was like should he have taken out Rich Hill with no hitter? So last night it was an issue because Rich Hill was spectacular. Uh, he all sorts of called strikes, pounded the zone, a lot of weak contact. And the Pirates basically didn't stand a chance. Yeah, and if you look at the home run that finally got hit, right, 94 miles an hour, uh, 33 degrees of exit velocity, and a projected 347 feet. So if you think about this, 94 miles an hour for a home run is not a very hard hit home run. It's actually extremely soft. Only 2.4% of home runs that we've ever tracked have been hit that softly. So right away, you know that this is kind of more of a lazy fly ball than it is like an Aaron Judge destroyed ball. But even just within the context of last night's game, and that was a 94-mile-an-hour batted ball, there were 11 balls hit harder last night. There were four balls that actually went a longer distance last night than this home run. And this is my favorite stat of the entire night. So that ball had a 16% hit probability. It's generally a lazy fly out to center field. 22 different balls in the Pirates-Dodgers game had a higher hit probability last night. And this is the one that won the game, which is amazing. Yeah, what I was wondering as I watched it is uh, they had Curtis Granderson in left field who almost made the catch, which would have been like the play of the year. Can you imagine if he made that catch? And you see he went all out. He was going right into the stands. Like I thought for a second he had it. And I also thought for a second he might have hurt his I thought it was both, honestly. Um, And I was wondering what we know now about sprint speed. Um, and we know, we've talked about this before, Curtis Granderson, uh, when he was playing center field, we sort of talked about how he was the slowest center fielder in baseball this year because he was, you know... He's 36 years yeah, old, not yeah. unexpected. Um, 
and he's still slow for a left fielder. His sprint speed is like around 26. 26.6 we have for him on the season. And, and the context there is uh, 27 feet per second is the league average. 23 is usually the slowest. That's where the catchers and DHs are. And the elite guys are about 30 feet per second. So if 27 feet per second is average and he is at 26.6 feet per second, that's the average of his maximum effort plays, slightly below average. Now on this play, 25.8 feet per second. So he was even below his normal average. And you could see maybe being a little slower because you know the wall's there. So you don't, sure. you know, you know, you can't necessarily run as fast as you possibly can the whole way. But the other guys who've been playing left field for the Dodgers this year Chris Taylor, sprint speed of 28.6 feet per second. Which is very good. Uh, Cody Bellinger, 28.5. And Andrew Tolles, although he's hurt, 28.4. So for left fielders, that's really fast. So your argument is that if either of those guys had been out there and you know running two feet per second faster than Curtis Granderson, maybe they get there in time to make that catch? Because he doesn't miss that ball by much. No, We're talking but, inches. But he also didn't get there. Like He basically didn't get there. In, like, part of the issue is he didn't get there in time, whereas I think a faster person might have been able to get there in time and had more of an opportunity to time. Well, I looked this up. The height of that wall is six feet. So it's not the green monster or anything like that. If you're there and you're standing there and you can jump and with your wingspan, I don't know, maybe you get up to 10 feet. You're maybe you're right. Maybe you do get that ball before it sells in because 347 feet. It's not exactly a crushed Aaron judge type baseball. You know, and what's interesting about this home run is as unlikely as it was, it was actually very typical for Josh Harrison. It was extremely typical. Let's give credit where credit is due. I'm riding the bus this morning, and Maddie emails me, and he's like, hey, I think Josh Harrison's done this a lot. Can you look this up? And I looked up the numbers, and uh, I couldn't believe how accurate this was. So uh, as we've talked about on the show, every batted ball has a hit probability based on exit velocity and launch angle, what should have happened based on the quality of contact. And if you compile that over the course of a season or of a group of batted balls, you can get an expected outcome, expected batting average, expected weighted on base, whatever you want. So I looked this up uh, in the stack, and since stack came online in 2015 we have tracked 275 different players who've hit 20 home runs or more in that span total in that span yes total so josh harrison's 382 foot average distance on his home runs of those 275 players is tied for the second lowest and the only guy below him is dd gregorius and he is very much taking advantage of the short porch uh, in right field at yankee stadium if you look at the expected batting average on all those batted balls right now the actual batting average on home runs is obviously 1000 a home run is a hit always but it doesn't always have to be a perfect expected batting average because sometimes balls like this usually don't go out. So the guys at the top of that list, Stanton, I think was like 870. That's his expected batting average. A lot of them are no doubters. Of the 275 players, Josh Harrison's 445 expected batting average on home runs is, wait for it, lowest. <laughs> Which, like, I don't want to make it like he doesn't, you know, he's getting lucky. He doesn't earn his home runs. Like, we're going to talk about what he does in a second. But it's really interesting that you kind of called this and you said, hey, I think he gets a lot of these, uh, you know, low-impact home runs. And here we are. Yeah, because I know it's often when people hit these low-probability home runs, we sort of talk about them internally. Um, and this one jumped and so like I've heard his name come up a few times as having really low probability home runs. So it occurred to me that like this is kind of a thing for him. And if you look at his spray chart of home runs at PNC Park there is a pattern. Yeah, if you look at the spray chart of that park in Pittsburgh, if you look at the right field corner, it's like a 90-degree angle. It's kind of what you'd expect. The left field isn't really like that. There's kind of a, a cutoff in left field where it's a little bit shorter. So 325 feet down the line in left field is the fourth shortest left field in baseball, and one of those three that are shorter is the Green Monster. So it's shorter, but it's also 37 feet high. So it's one of the easier places in baseball to hit a home run if you can pop a ball just over that wall. And we looked this up. He's done this. He did it just last week. He did it in a ball that looked almost identical. The left fielder, the exact same thing. I found like four or five other examples of this exact same play. 
And this is how you can get home runs. He's got a career-high 16 home runs, and his pull percentage, by the way, is up in each of the last three seasons. So it's almost, I don't know if he's consciously trying to do this, but if you look at, you know, he had a very good 2014 and kind of a down last two years. His production and his pull percentage correlate extremely well. And he had, he had a great quote after the game where he said something like, I know I didn't get all of it, but I knew I got enough but of it. But I got it. enough of it, which is exactly right. I, I think it's fascinating. He breaks up one of the most magical nights in history with a ball that was like 23rd highest hit probability of the night. And you know, it's, what, what I also uh, found interesting about last night's game, and this I'm not saying there's any meaning behind this, but it reminded me of the 2001 Mariners who won 116 games, but their most famous regular season game was a loss when they blew like an 11 run lead to the Indians on Sunday night baseball. You know, really the Mariners should have won 117 games that year. They had like possibly the most unlikely blown lead maybe in baseball history. And last night, the Dodgers who were making a run at 116 wins, almost certainly their most famous regular season game is going to be a loss. Um, obviously, when you win that much, the, the wins kind of run together where the losses maybe stand out a bit more. Yeah, it's too bad they couldn't finish it off. This team really needed something to go their way this year. <laughs> so that was, I, I don't know, there's just like a perfect game or a near-perfect game is going to be fascinating by itself. But just seeing how that game actually ended, I think, is my favorite part. But I will say, this is not the most unlikely home run we saw of the last week. We actually saw a less likely home run, perhaps tied at least for the least likely home run since StatCast came online uh, in 2015. And not only that, it also happened to be at PNC Park, and it happened in the same game, the the Josh Harrison home run from last week that you also mentioned. Yeah, that's right. It is funny. So this is at PNC Park. So pretty much everything we just said about Josh Harrison's home run, keep that in mind, because last week, Jed Jerko, the Cardinals, hit a home run off of Jameson Tyon, 95 miles an hour, not that hard hit, 45 degree launch angle. So if you want a moonshot, this is a moonshot. Uh, We have tracked more than 15,000 home runs over the last three seasons. Only 25 of them have gone 45 degrees or higher, which is one-tenth of 1%. That is a very unlikely home run. And the expected batting average on that, a ball hit that high at 95 miles an hour exit velocity is 0.012, which is to say that ball never, ever goes out. And I mean that because if you look at the combination of, uh, of 95 miles an hour and 45 degrees, that is literally the only time it's ever happened. It's just these weak fly balls, like 335 feet to center field. But this one happened to go right down the line at Pittsburgh into the exact same cutout we just talked about with Josh Harrison. This park is amazing. <laughs> yes, and if you want to see the plays, go to MLB.com, go to our video section, and search StatCast Hall of Fame. You can see all of the StatCast Hall of Fame videos, and we are going to induct the Jorko home run and the Harrison home run. Double inductees this week. A very special moment for the StatCast podcast. And I will say that that was tied previously with a Cameron Mabin home run from last year. Only 87 miles an hour, 39 degrees, another moonshot, and uh, 340 feet also directly down the line. I'm starting to understand why guys like Brian Dozier just try to pull everything they can because they're not as strong as Judge, Sano, Stan. You're not going to go 430 feet to dead center. Why would you if you can go 340 down the line? Yeah, for sure. And if you go back and you look at... uh... Josh Harrison's spray chart at PNC in particular, I mean, PNC is short down the line and it's incredibly deep to left center field. So he's like, you know, in his, you know, in the last three years, he's basically hit, you know, two home runs to the deep part of the park at PNC Park. Yeah, it's not his game. <laughs> no. And I, I appreciate guys who, like I said, I don't know if he's doing this on purpose, but I appreciate guys who kind of learn what their strengths and weaknesses are and tailor their game towards it. Now, speaking of strengths, we're going to argue about the fastest man in baseball, but first, very quickly, let's talk about our friends over at the Cut Forecast. They are the podcast from the staff of MLB.com's Cut Four section, which focuses on the lighter side of baseball. If you've made it this far in our podcast, you'll definitely enjoy theirs because it'll make you laugh and you might even learn something about baseball dogs or ballpark food. Last week's episode debated Giancarlo Stanton's 
status among baseball's best and dreamiest players, <laughs> then presented a few hypothetical inventions which would forever change baseball if someone could just figure out how to make them real. I assume there's some sort of hoverboard situation going on here. If that sounds like something you're into, search the cut forecast, C-U-T number four, C-A-S-T, in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts and click subscribe. And now we can argue about Byron Buxton. Have you noticed Byron Buxton's been great for like the last three, four weeks? Yeah, he's been he's not only been playing his usual great defense, but he's been hitting and the twins are in the playoff race and they're a lot of fun and he's in my opinion, the biggest reason why. If if there's anything that we agree on, it's that we would love to see the Twins make it into the wild card game because they're just so exciting. There's so much there to be interested about. And you remember, Buxton had this great finish to last year. Nine home runs in September. Everybody thought, finally put it together. And then he totally cratered in the first half. It's it just a mess. He was striking out like 45% of the time. Uh, got hurt, changed his batting stance a little bit, got rid of a leg kick. And anyway, he's been crushing the ball for uh, about six weeks now, I guess. And he's been really uh, fun to watch. He also set... As new stack cast record actually broke his own record on August 18th. He had an inside the park home run tracked at 13.85 seconds. That is now the fastest stack cast home to home we've ever tracked. The previous record was his 14.05 seconds from last year. And obviously it's not just the home to home, right? Like he's got the top two there. But if you look at home to third, he owns seven of the top 16 home to second. He's got the three fastest home to first. He has the second fastest among right-handed hitters. I mean, obviously speed for him uh, is elite. That's, that's his game. It's one of the many things he can do and if you look at sprint speed for the last three seasons this year is basically tied with billy hamilton uh, at just over 30 last year he was slightly above billy hamilton at 30.7 feet and in 2015 we didn't have sprint speed yet then but going retroactively tied with gerard dyson at 30.2 feet so he's got a pretty clearly defined top end speed and he's been in the top two of sprint speed every single year yeah and the, the most amazing thing about there's, there's a few amazing things about that about this okay we'll go with the let's start with the home to home time 13.85 seconds the previous best was 14.05 seconds. Like, he sh- he didn't just break the This was like Usain Bolt at the, whatever, 2008 Olympics. Right. Like, he didn't just break the record. He shattered the record. And I realize, I recognize there are not that many opportunities where people have to run around the bases at their fastest speed. I, I get that. But he's like, it's not even close to what he'd done before. And the, 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 the best time besides that, I think, is 14.24 seconds by D. Gordon. A left-handed hitter. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> is is that a bit of a disadvantage here uh, by being a righty hitter? You know, and it matters more, I think, on home to first. It maybe gets less of a deal as you go around the bases. But yeah, lefties should probably own all these records because we're talking about tenths of a second or hundredths of a second. So the fact that he's not that he's that he's number one and two in home to home, and seven of the top six in home to thir- third, and top three in home to second. Home to second is one that happens. There are a lot of occasions where someone has to run as fast as they possibly can from home to second. And the fact that he owns all three and is a right-handed hitter, to me, that tells you all you need to know that he is actually the fastest player in baseball. So he's the fastest player in baseball, both by that and by by sprint speed, right up there with Billy Hamilton. Uh, and not only that, as you'd expect, he's elite at stealing bases. If you look at 94 players who have had 20 steal attempts the last uh, two seasons, he has stolen 32 bases in 35 attempts. That's a 91% success rate. It is the best. So obviously, uh, you know, the eye test, the data, speed. Now, here's the question. Does this make him the fastest player who ever played baseball? Before you answer, I want to, I want to preface why we can say that. I, I tend to think that anybody who's the best at anything right now in baseball is the best that there's ever been. And what I mean by that is whoever threw the ball the hardest in 1955, Bob Feller, you know, whoever – does not throw the ball as hard as Raldis Chapman. Like the players now, they're stronger, they're bigger, the nutrition's better, the training's better. Nobody has ever hit the ball as hard as Aaron Judge and John Carlos And you can take your Mickey Mantle, your Baby Ruth. It doesn't matter to me. The guys who are playing now are the best at all of those things. Do you think that ex- extends to speed? 
Yes. I think there's there's no question using, I mean, using, like I mentioned Usain Bolt, like, look at track stars. Like, they just are constantly running a little bit faster. And I would assume, I shouldn't assume it, like, there's no reason to believe that, the, that, that that does not apply to baseball. I actually posed this, you know, made this comment on Twitter. I said, hey, like, I think there's a legit argument that he's the fastest player of all time. And I got a lot of interesting feedback. And, you know, some people threw out, you know, some people threw out Billy Hamilton. I think there's an argument. My belief is that, you know, maybe in a, in a 40-yard dash or 50-yard dash, Hamilton might be Buxton, but I think in you know if we go like Olympic sprint, hundred meters, two hundred meters, to me Buxton, Buxton wins. Yeah, our, our friend Tom Tango threw out uh, a young Gerard Dyson, which I by that he's over thirty now and he's still I think in the top ten. And like I said in twenty fifteen he was tied for number one. Yeah. So unfortunately we can't track that back you know five years ago, but I, I would buy that. Uh, and our our colleague Joe Poznanski likes to throw out Willie Wilson, you know from the late seventies Royals. I, I can buy that, I guess. I don't for the reasons we mentioned before about like everyone now does it better. I don't think you can say Wilson. The question with Wilson is relative to his peers, was he? Well, that's that, thing. That, that to me, that's if, you, if we bring it to more of the traditional baseball discussion, which is like, okay, let's compare people to their peers. Like, was the gap between Buxton and average? bigger than the average, the, the Wilson in average. Well, yeah, I guess it depends on how you want to measure, because if it's always about measuring against their peers, then no one can ever beat Babe Ruth at home runs, ever. There was a season where he out-homered the entire rest of the American League all by himself. You know, like, that just doesn't happen anymore. That can't happen. But if it's like a one-to-one comparison, yeah, I, I think I have to say Byron Buxton or Hamilton, uh, maybe the, the fastest man who ever played. I will say the one name that comes up, and we don't have any real data on him, is, uh, I can never remember his name, Winningham, the guy who, uh, the track star, the yes. actual track star for the A's in the 70s that was used by Charlie Finley only as a pinch runner. He's literally an Olympic track star. I don't think he ever got a base hit, played the outfield barely, but he could maybe be up there. Probably, but I don't really care. It was a gimmick. It was, you know, a, it was gimmick. Like, it was a gimmick. So I, 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 uh, I st- and, I, and to be honest, I still... I'd have to study it more closely. It would not surprise me if Byron Buxton could compete with 1970s track stars. You know, when we said this the other day, we said we were going to go look up his actual like time in the 70s because, in theory, we should be able to find that if you're in the Olympics. Uh, so maybe that's out there. I don't know. But I, I think I agree with you that Buxton uh, is up there. But I will say... There is a name who has not yet qualified for our list yet, but he will if he comes up in September, and that is Mag Sierra from the Cardinals, who his print speed is pretty much right up there with these guys, you know? So maybe the top 10 fastest players are playing baseball right now, ever. Very possible. All right. Now, speaking of young players, you might remember that last year there was a big trade. Uh, Adam Eaton went from the White Sox to the Nationals, and the headliner in that deal was Lucas Giolito, and it was a very controversial trade. Because I think a lot of people thought that the Nationals really got kind of ripped off on that. They paid way too much for for Adam Eaton, uh, and this is before he got hurt. And I didn't really feel that way. I thought it was kind of a fair trade for both sides, but that was partially because I wasn't super high on Lucas Giolito. I don't think you were either. And when he came up last year, he pitched in three games. Uh, he only had you know 6.75 ERA, 11 strikeouts in 21 innings. He had the, actually the 12th lowest strikeout percentage of like 512 guys with 20 innings. Obviously, not a not a huge sample, but. Not encouraging either. And we, we talked about this a lot last year at the time of that trade. Right? Yeah, because, I mean, the thing with, with Giolito is also that his his performance of the minors has never really matched his prospect pedigree. He was a first-round pick who actually needed TJ at the time of the draft. So he had Tommy John surgery when the, when the Nationals drafted him. You know, before it was revealed that he would need Tommy John, there was discussion that he might be the number one overall in the pick in the draft and become the first high school right-handed pitcher to ever go number one in the draft, which still hasn't happened. Um and even after he came back, you know, in the low minors, he was very good. You know, it's almost like she's just almost like any, sort of out of there. Too good, for, too good for the low minors. But when he got to the high minors, he never really dominated the way you expect these guys with his kind of pedigree to dominate. And when he came up last year, what we noticed is that his four seam fastball um, had a very 
mediocre or like, very low spin rate. Well, like, yeah, but I could, which you know, sort of can be. I guess. Well, it's so you know, as we've said many times, high spin correlates well to strikeouts, swing strikes, and, and low spin can be good too. Ground balls like Brett Anderson has low spin, Mike Montgomery has low spin, and Lucas Giolito last year had a spin rate on his four seamer of twenty sixty four, two thousand sixty four RPM. Major league average is twenty two fifty seven, so considerably lower than that. And we saw, you know, he wasn't missing bats. And again, that's a, a small sample thing, but we've also learned you don't need a huge sample to get to spin rate in the same way I don't need a huge sample to know that Aroldis Chapman throws hard. You can tell that pretty quickly. So uh, we thought it would be interesting because last year he was with Washington and then he got traded. And a lot of people, I've read some scattering reports saying, well, we think Washington maybe messed with this delivery. The White Sox going to rebuild him. Don Cooper's great. All that's true. So he comes up, makes his debut on Tuesday, his first game in the majors with the White Sox after... An okay AAA season, 448 ERA isn't great, although he's a lot better the last couple weeks he was down there. So uh, on Tuesday against the Twins, six innings, four strikeouts, no walks, six hits, and three dingers. Now, all three of those home runs came on his fastball, which he threw 70% of the time. And I think your your opinion of, of what his first game was like kind of depends on whether you're just looking at the box score or you watched it. Because you see, no walks, hey, that's pretty good. That's good command. But if you actually watched it, he was all over the place. Like, he was not hitting his spots. Um, a lot of his curveballs, I think, bounced so far in front of the plate that nobody was actually going to swing at them so they could sit on the fastball. And so that's why the home runs came up. But anyway, I was interested in the spin in the spin rate and the velocity. So the spin rate, I found this was really interesting. It was up from 2064 last year to 2208 this year. And if you look at uh, all the pitchers who threw at least 50 fastballs both years, that was actually one of the 10 largest jumps, which is cool. We, we talk a lot. You can't really figure out a way to add spin. I don't know if it's just the one game. Maybe he actually did change his delivery a lot. Maybe he changed his grip. Um, it's still below the major league average, though, right? He's not a high-spin guy, and that's that's almost worse, I think. Like, we talk about this with Joe Kelly all the time. Joe Kelly throws 102 miles an hour, but it doesn't strike anybody out. <laughs> yeah, and that's, it's it's also, I mean, sort of the, I guess the, the I don't know, the sad is the right word, but I guess sad is that he's just he's not throwing that hard anymore. And maybe it's still, I don't, I don't, I can't say I know the reason why, but He's sort of advertised coming up. He was advertised as a guy who would throw in the high nineties. But last year, in his brief major league um, debut, he was throwing ninety three point four miles an hour, uh, average four seamer. On Tuesday, his debut ninety two point nine miles per hour. So when you have a, you know, right handed pitchers who throw low nineties, they're generally not big prospects, regardless of their spin rate. And like sometimes you can make up for a low spin rate, I mean, a low velocity with a really high spin rate on your four-seamer to sort of get deception with the spin rate, you know, the... Marco Estrada. Marco Estrada, you know, Koji Uhara, the, the famous examples that we've used before on this show. But with that velo, it's hard to see beyond the fact that he was a first-round pick four years ago where like where where the where the future star is yeah i mean there's there is more to life than spin of velocity obviously there's deception there's location there's there's the other repertoire on all of that uh but i, I think at the time i kind of thought of him as maybe a future reliever because if you're throwing 92 miles an hour maybe you get 95 in the bullpen right it worked for archie bradley it doesn't work for everybody obviously and there's really no downside in letting him start right now because the white Sox are rebuilding and he's still for sure. young but the curveball i did find interesting because Despite the unimpressive fastball spin, he had very high curveball spin. In his first game, he threw 10 of them. His average curveball spin was uh, over 2,750. The major league average is only 2,500. High curveball spin can be pretty good. And like I said, he was burying a lot of them in the ground. There was good movement on it. Now, if he can actually get uh, command of it to where it's a pitch that someone might ever actually swing at, then all of a sudden you've got something. But if you can't, if you're not going to fool anybody with the curveball and they sit on the fastball, that's the problem. Yeah, and by, by no means do I mean to, to write Giolito off. I'm just saying based on what I've seen from his minor league performance and his major league performance and sort of just watching him a little bit and looking at his more the 
the Statcast metrics and the Velo. I it, again, I'm not running them off, but it's just it's hard to see like what people what they. It's hard to get that excited about the profile we see right now. Right. I still think he can be a pretty good major league reliever as a starter. I'm not so sure. So anyway, interesting to see him come back up, and that's someone we're going to be watching pretty closely going forward. Uh, I think the last guy we want to talk about this week is someone who is very clearly in the race for National League MVP, which, by the way, is a wild race. I could probably make a case for like nine different guys to win the National League MVP award, but Charlie Blackman, right? Charlie Blackman is this guy who I don't think was ever a top highly rated prospect. He was an okay prospect, kind of was uh, a decent player for the first three years or so of his career last year had a really good there this year has been fantastic yeah i mean i'll I'll, I'll, let me digress a little bit and tell a slightly personal story about charlie blackman okay (laughs) um because he's a guy that i've rooted for for a long time and i'll tell you why um as i've referenced a couple times on this podcast um earlier in my career i worked at baseball america and a few of my colleagues went on to become scouts for major league teams and one of them is a guy named al matthews who after I left, was hired by the Rockies to be their Georgia scout, Georgia North Florida scout in, you know, I guess it was 2008. And his first year, the first player he signed, it was, I guess it was a supplemental first round pick, was Charlie Blackman. And Al was a good friend of mine. And like, it's exciting. A first year scout rarely gets uh, a first round pick or even a pick that high because generally they sort of want to like reach out a little bit, maybe see see how good you are. And I mean, but then again, usually – most first-year scouts don't get an area like Georgia and North Florida where there's so much talent. So, um, so as, as a result, because I wanted to you know, see my friend succeed, I've been rooting for Charlie Blackman since he was in the minors and followed his career very closely. So I'll admit a personal bias in being very excited to see the, the player that Charlie Blackman has become. Sure. And I, you know, I, I talked to him last year. He actually gave me a little bit of a hard time, and not in a mean way, but in a I-know-what-I'm-talking-about way. He's got a finance background like in, in college. He went to Georgia Tech. He's an intelligent guy. But anyway, he has some of the wildest home road splits I think we've ever seen. Now, not surprising. He plays for the Rockies. Most likely, Rockies hitters will hit better at home and be penalized on the road. And we've talked about that too, the course field effect. So it's not surprising he's hitting better at home. But I have—I was going to say I've never seen anyone with home road splits this large, and that's because, as you looked up, it's actually true. It's almost <laughs> never happened. So let me see. Let's set the scene real quick here. Uh, Charlie Blackman at home this year, hitting 392, 469 on base. 806 slugging. That comes out to a 513 weighted on base average, which is roughly the equivalent of 1948 Stan Musial, who, as you may have heard, is a very solid player. Charlie Blackman on the road this year, 287, uh, 331 on base, 460 slugging. Fine, you know, slightly above league average, the 335 weighted on base. But that's that's massive, right? And then you looked up that this is actually either the first or second largest split uh, between home and road pretty much ever. Yeah, well, um, Joe Posnanski wrote about this last week, and just looking at OPS and in terms of biggest gaps in OPS, home versus road, minimum two hundred at bats on the home home and road. So right now, Charlie Blackman has a gap of four hundred eighty four points of OPS, twelve seventy five at home, seven ninety one on the road. That is second. That would currently be second all time. Number one all time. Larry Walker, 1999, <laughs> Coors Field, five, a gap of 516. He was 1410 at home, 894 on the road, so still very elite. What's interesting also is number three on the I shouldn't say I should say maybe not surprising, but still interesting. Number three on that list, Vinny Castilla, 
1995. Uh, he was 14-13 uh, <laughs> at home. Thought of, I think I have a typo here. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's huge. Yes, it's uh, huge. I, I'm kind of eyeballing the rest of your top 10 here. and There's not there's not teams, but I think Eric Young, 1996, was Rockies. For sure. I think Jeff Cirillo, 2000, was Rockies. Sure. And um, I'm pretty sure that Fred Lynn and Bill Buckner were not Rockies. But There's also the weird year, Michael Tucker, 2002, when the Royals moved the fences in for a year. And, like, <laughs> That's right. Had, like a really, really weird yeah. year. But with, with, just to go on a slight tangent for a second, it just goes to show also how crazy pre-Humidor Coors was. That or was actually, 1995, was that was that still Coors Field, or was that... Uh, that was not. 96 was Coors Field. So 95 was well, still... Maybe, my... maybe they moved mid-year, now I can't remember. Anyway, so anyway, 1995, Vinny Castilla, just to give you a sense of how crazy it was, right? He hit 309, this is overall line, 309, 347, 564. In terms of weighted runs created plus, that was 112. So basically 12 percentage points above average. It was tied for 66th. Right. The major. Weighted like, so really, plus is park adjusted. Yeah, so. this park adjusted. So it's like a slightly above average hitter who hit 309, 347, 564. I, Chipper Jones was tied with him, who was a rookie that year, and weighted runs created plus. His overall line was 254, 353, 450. He's so, giving up 50 points of batting average and like 114 points of slugging, and they had the same line. <laughs> so, so basically, I mean, Blackman post Humidor Cores is in a different, is, is actually in kind of a different category than. Walker and Castillo. Right. And so I, we actually looked at these uh, with more advanced stats. So uh, expected weighted on base, just based on quality of contact, what should have happened versus what did happen. So if you look at him on the road this year, 329 expected weighted on base. And uh, we've got slightly different numbers of fan graphs, but you know, 342 actual weighted on base. So he's pretty much earning what he's getting, right? 402 expected weighted on base at home. 502 expected weighted on base, actually. Actual weighted on base. It's the largest gap of the 288 hitters with 100 home plate appearances. So clearly home course field is helping him. But here's what I find the wildest thing of all. This didn't happen last year. If you look at him last year, he basically had, was the same guy home and away. So he's actually been uh, better at home this year, but but worse on the road. I don't have an answer for this. I just find it insane. It's, <laughs> his his season right now is just like all sorts, all sorts of crazy. You know, he's... Uh, He's on pace, like give or take, right now on pace for 150 runs scored. And like most people don't think about runs because it's just not a, stat, a particularly sexy stat. Although, you know, I'm actually sort of, I like the run as a stat, oddly amongst like old school stats, because like my feeling is that to, to accrue a lot of runs, yeah, sometimes you can bat first. Which he is. But like on a team, but like, like sometimes you get your Vince Coleman's who score a lot of runs because they're fast and they play in a good lineup and they hit first. But usually to score runs, you need to be get on base to hit extra base hits, often home runs, and also be a good base runner. Usually, guys who score a lot of runs are well-rounded players. So while it's not my be-all, end-all stat, actually, in terms of traditional stats, I kind of like and, it and, as a stat. And he is a well-rounded player, and he is batting first. And the last I looked, he has the most played appearances of anybody baseball. And, you know, though the Rockies' offense has been a little controversial this year, he does have Nolan Arenado hitting, you know, not that far behind him. So there's that. But so he is on pace for 150 runs. The last player to score 150, 150 runs was Jeff Bagwell in 2000. He scored 152 runs. Before that... No one has scored 150 runs. No one had scored 150 runs in a season since Ted Williams in 1949. I'm told he's good, <laughs> and that was in fewer games too. Yeah, but like that's that's just that's just kind of crazy. The other crazy stat about uh, Blackman that I discovered this week: he currently leads the National League in runs, total bases, hits, and triples. No one has led a league in those four categories since Stan Musial in 1948. 
Charlie Blackman season is crazy. It's really, it's really crazy, and it's it's a good reminder that I think people still think you know what's the Coors Field uh, impact? It's just oh the ball flies further, more home runs happen. But that's not actually true. The, the biggest impact is that the outfield is huge, so there's a lot of doubles and triples. I'm almost positive he's leading the league in triples by a lot. Yeah, no, I mean there hasn't. In that, I looked this up earlier this year. That he's not going to do it at this point. He's got 14 triples, but like early in the season, like. He was on pace for twenty triples. There hasn't been a twenty triple season. I can't remember when I looked it up. It's been it's been a long time. Did, uh, I want to say Granderson did it uh, like five years ago, maybe. Maybe he was the last guy to do. It. I think when he was in the Tigers, so it's before, right, pretty, right, so right. at least before two thousand nine. Another park with a giant outfield, <laughs> and that's kind of where these things come from. Uh, it, what's also interesting to point out is that uh, I, I, he's actually got only a fourteen percent strikeout rate at home and a twenty two percent strikeout rate away. Now, obviously, strikeout by definition means you're not contacting the ball. So it's not just all about where does the ball go when you hit it. It's about the fact that pitchers pitch differently. You can be more aggressive. You can expect fastballs. You don't see as good breaking pitches. So there's a lot of different things that go into what makes a player, a batter, more effective at home. But what I can't explain is what changed from this year to last year. And the thing that's important to note is that, like, he's not, as we noted, first, first of all, as we noted, he's not entirely a Coors Field creation. Last year, he was basically the same home in the road. And this year, his weighted runs created plus is 143. That's 15th in MLB, and that leads the Rockies. It's way ahead of Arenado. Arenado's 128. Yeah, and there is an argument, and I know Rockies fans listening will, will be so happy to point this out to me, that they think that, that weighted, uh, they, the park-adjusted stats are unfair to them because it doesn't account for the fact that you're hurt on the road if you call Colorado home, which I believe is true. So you can even say that's actually underselling him a little bit. But going back to what you just said, Everybody loves to get mad at me when I say Arenado can't be the MVP of the league because I don't think he's the MVP of his own team because I think that's Charlie Blackman. He's been unbelievable this year. I know he's not the you know he's not the center fielder that Arenado is at third base, but he's been a much better hitter. Yeah, and it's it's I mean it's a cool it's a cool career path. You know we see this. We've talked about a lot of guys of this nature, and maybe it's it's maybe I should take take my own lesson when talking about Lucas Giolito is that player development is not linear necessarily, or it doesn't happen at the same pace for everything. Where Blackman came up, he looked like he was going to be like oh you know. Good extra outfielder. That was sort of like it looked like, oh, he'll be a nice nice big leaguer, a good piece. And he's become, the last two or three years, become a bona fide star. Well, what did we, what did we start this show off talking about? Rich Hill. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about player development not being litter. I, no, you're absolutely right. Not everybody comes up and dominates from day one. There's a million different paths you can get there. And Blackman has, even if you even if you can't get past the wild home road splits, which I completely understand, he has turned himself into a legitimately above average star level player for, for the Rockies. Yeah, I don't think he's going to win the MVP. But I, I think... He's going to get votes. He's not going to win the MVP for two reasons. One is because people will see the home road splits and lose their minds. And two, because I think the narrative of Arenado exceeds the narrative of Blackman. And also maybe three, they might not hang on to the wild card spot. And I think if that happens. And also, as often happens when there's two good candidates from one team, people can't really coalesce around one guy. And like, you know, everybody else in that race, it's like, I think Goldschmidt's probably up there now. Votto. Harper, somebody from the Dodgers, Stanton, if he ends up popping 60 home runs, I'm sure I'm forgetting like five other guys right now. I mean, I mean, Goldsmith's the perfect example because basically he's the only guy from his team that's really in the case. So it's like, it'd be obvious, like, okay, if we're going to vote D-back, it's like, that's the guy. Harper's been hurt. That's probably going to probably going to cost him right. MVP. He's also won the won the award before. Sure. Sometimes people like to try and like find new. So it's, and you Ren, know, Votto, Ren, Votto will be penalized for a bad team. For, I yeah, mean, Rendon seems underrated, by the way. Nobody's talking about him, but. But you could still also, I mean, Murphy's pretty good too. So yeah, well, that's like, the thing. Is it, there's that's, like a whole separate conversation to be had about this NL MVP. I mean, this is why I think Goldsmith's going to end up winning for the reason because he's the only sort of like. I think unless Stanton goes nuts and gets the 62. True. But again, he'll suffer from the, his team didn't make the postseason, although maybe they, they still, they're right at 500. They're, if you're at 500 on, with, in the two wildcard era, 
If you're at 500 on September 1st, you're in the race. Let me let me finish up with this comment on the MVP voting, just to, as a concept. Uh, it is not like the Hall of Fame balloting, where every member of the BBWA who's qualified and has their 10 years gets to vote. It's a pretty randomly selected group of like 30 people every year. I think two, it's, two from each, two from each two market. market in that in that league. Right, which is which is why I'm never going to get the vote because there's so many New York based writers, but people who are like in the Seattle chapter or whatever vote pretty much every year. But my point is that. It really depends largely on who is selected, right? Because if it's people like, let's say, Dave Cameron, who votes for this stuff, he's going to have a very different outlook than maybe one of the older school guys. And you don't really know who gets that vote. So the electorate is very different each year, and uh, that could very much impact who wins. So anyway, uh, really looking forward to seeing Charlie Blackman go back home, where I will get to go make my first visit to Coors Field in two weeks, which I'm really excited about. And hopefully I will watch him hit dingers directly over the Rocky Mountains. I don't know if the geography matches up. Anyway, that's our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.